Good morning. Our reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So ends today's reading. If you didn't quite get there in time, and you have a Bible, open it to 1 Thessalonians. And as I like to periodically say, if you're uh, trying to furtively look at the person next to you to figure out where 1 Thessalonians is, just be humble and use your table of contents. That's why it's there. No shame in doing that. You know, sometimes we can come into church and feel like we have to have all these church things mastered. We have to know what to do and say before the service or what to say or not say over coffee or where everything is in the Bible. And I'm just so grateful that's not God's attitude toward us. Uh, He is eager to meet you and encounter you and love you no matter where you are at right now in your relationship with him and your understanding of him. So I hope he will do that again this morning through the preaching of his word. Before we jump into this, um, I want to make one quick book recommendation. If you were here last Sunday, uh, we jumped into the beginning of chapter 4, where in this letter uh, to a church in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul, writing the first century, helps them understand various ways that we please God with our life. And he focuses in two in particular in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. The first one we looked at last Sunday is pleasing God through our pursuit of holiness, especially in our sexuality. And I was grateful for just how many of you were honest with me, both before and after that sermon, about how hard it is in a very sexualized culture to even wrap our minds around, Lord, help me understand your good plan for my sexuality. And then help me to know how to fight to honor you with it. If that is a challenge for you, which I've kind of gone as a pastor from thinking, well, are you one of those odd, strange people who struggles with that too? You know what? We are all struggling in one way or another to honor God with our sexuality. Um, I think there is no battle harder in some ways than internet pornography. Um, That is one of the most sad examples of how the evil one and our sinful nature and the world around us uh, get a hold of our heart and draw us away from an affection for Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you, if that's a struggle for you or just a battle that you want to understand more as you're helping the people around you, uh, to check out this book by Deepak Raju. I think I'm saying its name right. Uh, This is called Pornography, Fighting for Purity. I got this recently because it's written in a little bit different style. It's actually a a devotional. So he has 31 days in here. And what he does, each each day he gives you, I'll just try to show you here, uh, two pages to read. So day one, two pages, super easy. You could read this over breakfast cereal or Pop-Tarts or whatever you like to 
coffee, whatever you do in the morning. Um, and Zipak gives a short scripture at the top and then a two-page meditation on a specific way we can fight the temptation of sexual lust. And I really like his approach because I found that it's typically not whole books that God uses to change me. It's little pieces, right? It's a little thought. It's, it's the Holy Spirit helping us connect one bit of truth to one bit of life. And that's Deepak's approach in here. So you can check this out in the bookshop. And, and let me say this as well. Um, may there be no shame in going into our bookshop and buying any resource on fighting to honor God with sexual purity. Amen? Um, part of why this is such a sad struggle in the church, and I will resist the temptation to re-preach last week's sermon, is that so often we're the least comfortable talking about sexuality, you know? But if we really believe God's word, that he created sex and all things sexual, including our sexual desires, though corrupted by the fall, um, there should be no shame in running to one another and to a bookshop and to pastors and to friends and to mentors and say, help me honor God in this huge area of life. So let's build that in the church. Uh, You can check that out. Happy to talk more if you want more information about that. But as we jump into this second part of uh, the beginning of chapter four, verses nine to 12, I want you to think about something with me. And this is a question that I've asked you before as a church. Uh, But it's a critical one, so we're going to wrestle with this again. If I were to ask you, what is the one thing, or one of the most important things, that distinguishes the church, or the people of God, from the world? I wonder what you would say. So think about that. What, What is it that sets apart God's people from those who are not God's people? Now, Some of you, if you're being honest, and I want nothing but honesty, um, because God sees you and knows you, and you're not going to fool him by giving him the right answer, might think absolutely nothing. And that's why I'm not a Christian. Or that's why I don't go to church very often. They're no better than anyone else. Some of you might say, well, they believe in God. Or they believe the Bible. Or or they're good people. Others might say, well, they are convinced that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose from the grave to accomplish salvation for all mankind by delivering us from sin and death. Did he do that? Yes. Absolutely he did that. Yet that is not what Jesus himself pointed to in John 13, verse 34. When Jesus answered the question, how will the people of God be distinguished or identified in the eyes of the world? Listen to what he said. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know, that's our question, right? 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's Jesus saying? In no uncertain terms, he's saying that the quality and character of our love for one another, church, is what will distinguish the people of God from the people of the world in the eyes of the world. And mind you, let's just get this out here real quick that we're going to come back to it in more detail. The love that Jesus refers to here is not love as we so easily define it. We tend to define love as whatever feels good, right? So if it feels affirming, if it feels natural, if it feels right, it must be loving. And yet when the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ speaks of love, he doesn't start with a feeling. He starts with the character of our creator. And we're going to get back to that in a little bit. But for right now, I want you to focus on this main point. It's the way that we love one another that God intends to distinguish the church, the people of God from the rest of the world. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the Apostle Paul writing again this letter to the church in Thessalonica in the early part of the first century directs their attention and ours to the priority of love in our relationships. You know, I mentioned earlier that, that Paul wants the Thessalonians He's the one who introduced them to Jesus. He wants them to live in a way that's pleasing to God. If you look at the top of chapter four, he's asking and urging them, guys, we want you to walk. We want you to live to please God. That's the banner. And so he exhorts them, as we saw last Sunday, to please God by pursuing holiness in their sexuality. Verses three to eight. And then in verses 9 to 12, he exhorts them to please God. He urges them to please God by practicing brotherly love. And I think the divinely intended effect of verses 9 to 12 is the same in the Thessalonians as it is in our own hearts. I'd summarize it this way. Our relationships in the church, friends, in the church with one another, should model a familial love or a brotherly love that we never exploit for selfish gain. That's Paul's point. And though I'm well aware you cannot exhaust the theme of Christian love in a single sermon, we're going to try to focus on some of the specific ways the Lord instructs us in these verses to love one another and follow Paul's lead here. So think about this. How do we need to love one another in the church? I'm going to give you several answers to that. Here's the first one, okay? We love one another as members of the same family. That's our starting point. We love one another as members of the same family. Look at verse 9. Because the beginning of verse 9 is one of these places in Scripture, there are a lot of them, where you can just kind of breeze through, yeah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Very, very significant. Don't overlook it. What does Paul say? Now concerning brotherly love. I want you to notice there that Paul doesn't speak of love in generic terms. He certainly doesn't leave it up to the Thessalonians to define it for themselves. So from the very beginning, he lets us know he's talking about a brotherly or a sisterly kind of love. The kind of love that should exist between siblings. And I think it's fair to say that that using words like, hey brother, or hey sister, is so 
common in the church sometimes, in certain Christian circles, that it's easy just to think that's a really nice thing to say and to completely miss the underlying significance. We're good at that. Paul's not doing that here. What what Paul's doing is he is urging them and us to practice a familial kind of love because he knows that something radical has happened to the Thessalonians. No matter their gender, their ethnicity, their maturity in Christ, something radical has happened. They've been adopted into the same family. Remember, because Paul's aware of this, Jesus isn't a nice guy or a religious teacher. He is God. All that God is, Jesus is. All that Jesus is, God is. Hebrews 1.3. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. But notice, Jesus isn't God in just a generic kind of way, okay? Jesus is God in a son kind of way. Mark 1.11. You are, the father speaking to Jesus, his son, my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so the Christian church has held and continues to hold, if it's faithful, that, that there is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity because he has eternally existed in relationship with his Father as his only begotten Son. And that relationship didn't change or go away when he who inhabits eternity emptied himself and was born as a baby, God in human flesh. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the grave as the son of God. Why did he do that? So that sinful men and women like us could become children of God, adopted sons and daughters. And the Bible reminds us, friends, that that we are not children of God by nature. Sometimes we hear that, right? We hear that, like, we're all children of God. No, we're not. We're not all children of God by nature. We're children of wrath. We've rejected God's laws, right? We've rebelled against his authority and his decrees. We're we're sinners. We're willfully alienated from our creator. And as a result of that rebellion, we are alienated and separated from one another. Our separation from God, in other words is the ultimate explanation behind everything that is wrong in the world today in our relationships with each other. All the the racism, all the violence, all the division and bitterness, all those love problems are rooted in a God problem. And that's why Jesus was born. (laughs) Galatians 4 verse 4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, a daughter. And if a son 
than an heir through God. Do you realize, Christian, that, that if you, not, not just, I'm not talking about just showing up in church or saying, yeah, I believe in God. That, that doesn't make anybody a Christian. But if you're a Christian, if, if you've turned away from sin, doing life your way, and turned toward trusting and obeying and following Jesus as the only one who can save you, then you need to know this. The gift that God has given you in Christ doesn't stop with forgiveness of your sins. In other words, God's goal for you, Christian, in Jesus is not, you know what, we've got this little unfortunate problem called sin, so so hold still, (laughs) clean, hold still, (laughs) anybody else, next, I'm getting tired. No, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He adopts you as his very own son and daughter. Why? Why is that not just the thing pastors say to make you feel warm fuzzies and come back to church? Well, because your faith in Christ unites you to Christ such that all that is true of him, all the privileges, including sonship, that he has enjoyed from all eternity, they become yours. Not because you're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. And you're found in him. In other words, if you're a Christian, you can no more stop being a son or daughter of God than Jesus can stop being the son of God. That's crazy, right? And that's why Hebrews puts the words of Psalm 22, 22 in Jesus' mouth. Listen, I will tell of your name, Jesus says, to my brothers. Do you know Jesus is your older brother, Christian? In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So when you become a Christian and God becomes your father, think about this now, okay? It's not just your relationship with him that changes. It's your relationship with every other Christian that changes. They're no longer just that person you don't like or like. Or that person who looks like you or, or doesn't look like you. They're, they're your spiritual brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Which means the church isn't just a bunch of random people who, who happen to share a common belief in Jesus. That's not what the church is. The church is a family. Again, not, not because we feel warm fuzzies when we get together. And man, I just kind of felt family vibes. You know what? If you live in a church long enough, which by the way is full of sinners because we're not all like, yet like Jesus Christ, there are going to be a lot of times you get around the church and you feel anything but warm fuzzies. You feel pain. You feel conflict. You feel, well, how come I walked by them and they didn't greet me? Fuzzies? I don't think so. I'm going to go find a church where I can get some more fuzzies. <laughs> no, no. The church is a family, not because we feel warm fuzzies, or even because we happen to care for each other. The church is a family because we have the same father. That's why. Our older brother Jesus has made us sons and daughters of God. And that means that when I talk about this familial, I know that's kind of a big word, but that just means a family kind of love. Familial character of Christian love, that's not a put on. That's not something, in other words, that we, we kind of force on our relationships like a sticker to make them something they're not. It's actually who we are. 
It's who we are. And we got to work hard to perceive and relate to each other that way. Here's where we get into some application because we have a far greater, and some of you feel this, right? We have a far greater and more enduring bond, you do, Christian, with any other Christian than you do with anyone in your biological family. So, here's a question. Given all that, when you see another Christian, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? Think about that. When you see another Christian, somebody knows another follower of Christ, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? There goes a cool person. There goes a socially awkward person. (laughs) There goes someone like me. There goes someone who's not like me. Into what category do you instinctively place them? What is it? Well, being in Christ doesn't negate our gender. Okay? God created us male and female. He saves us as male and female. We will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth as male and female. Being in Christ doesn't negate our ethnicity. God created a world filled with diversity. When, when the church was born in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people in glorious diversity. And Jesus is going to be glorified for all eternity, as in Revelation 7, men and women from every tribe and every language and every nation praise his name. So when we see gender, when we see ethnicity, we see something that is pleasing in the sight of God and should be honored and celebrated accordingly. But notice, think, please think carefully here, friends. I didn't ask, when you see another Christian, what should you notice is true about them? Or how can you love them in light of what is true about them? Those are good, important questions. But I ask, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? What's the primary category in which they belong. Brotherly or sisterly love says, listen, there goes a man or woman with whom I have been eternally united in Christ. There goes one who is infinitely precious in the sight of my father. And if I am seeing them for who they really are, then they will be infinitely precious to me. That's what brotherly sister love sounds and feels like. Our our relationships in the church, in other words, should be a model of familial love and that we love each other first and foremost for who we are in Christ. So, on a practical note, a lot of applications here, but let me just flag one. I encourage some of our leaders this week, I was meeting with some of our small group leaders, community group leaders, that the kind of familial love, the kind of brotherly, sisterly love that Paul's commanding here, and really in the whole letter, is a love that crosses gender barriers. So let me explain what I mean, okay? I mean that if you're a brother in Christ, you should have a deep and abiding concern and desire for the spiritual welfare of all your sisters in Christ. And if you are a sister in Christ, you should have a deep and abiding spiritual concern and welfare for all of your brothers in Christ. 
So are there strategic benefits to befriending members of your sex? Absolutely. Okay? Do do we need to walk in wisdom in all our relationships in the church, including those with members of the opposite sex? Absolutely. Okay? But hear this. But the way we relate to one another as men and women in Christ should be primarily informed by the fact that we are exactly that, men and women in Christ. He's my brother. She's my sister. Not, not, there goes someone from Venus. Or there goes someone from Mars. Or, or even worse, right? Even sadder. There goes a sexual purity obstacle or risk factor. Man, you, you, you should relate to the women in our church first and foremost as sisters in Christ. And, and ladies, you should relate as women first and foremost to the men in this church as brothers in Christ. What does that require? It requires seeing one another first and foremost for who we are in Christ. And then, here's the test, right? Here's how you know if you're doing that. Building strong, God-honoring friendships with members of the opposite sex where we take a genuine interest in each other and work very hard to help each other follow Jesus. That, that's what brotherly, sisterly love looks like. It doesn't split us into two categories. Men follow Jesus over here. Women follow Jesus over there. It brings us together as a family to follow Jesus together as a family. So let's be a church that loves one another as members of the same family. Because it's who we are. You don't, you don't, if you're a Christian, you, didn't, you don't get to pick your family. <laughs> it's who we are. That's the first way. Here's the second. We love one another as God taught us to love. As God taught us to love. So think about this. I'm, I'm convinced that our culture is infatuated with love. Just infatuated with it. In, in many ways, it's our God of choice. You know, so many people talk about, well, God is love. God is love. I think we live in a world that more often than not says love is God. And we also couldn't be more confused about what love actually is and does. So, notice, Paul doesn't say, for you instinctively know within your inner being, by virtue of being a human, what it means to love one another. What does he say? Look at God's word. Verse 9. You have been taught by God to love one another. There's that teaching thing again. What does that presume? Well, namely, that we're not born into this world having a clue what it means to love one another. You know, we're not surprised when a little boy or girl shows up into first grade kindergarten and, and they can't do algebra. I mean, we'd be like, what's wrong with you? No, because they have to learn. And in the same way, we have to learn how to love one another. If you just say, you know what? I'm just one of those loving people. People have told me I'm loving. I know I'm loving. I, you know, there are haters out there, but I'm loving. Well, the word of God says that you know less than, than I do, friend. We all need to be taught by God. Taught by God. 
Why? Because God is the one who teaches us what love is and what love does. Remember I said earlier, when the Bible talks about love, it doesn't start with what we feel or do. It starts with who God is and what God thinks and what God feels and what God does in light of those things. 1 John 3 verse 16, by this we know love. That it feels like it's loving. No, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. In other words, friend, if you want to know what love is, don't, don't look within yourself. Don't look to somebody around you or, or Mother Teresa, okay? Look to Jesus Christ crucified. Look there. See, see him willingly hanging on a cross. Crushed by the wrath of the Father against the sin of the world heaped on Jesus. Jesus, in other words, doesn't just display love toward us. You know, sometimes I've heard our non-Christian friends say things like, you know, Jesus just seemed like a really loving guy. As if he comports with some standard outside of himself that we all somehow know is what love actually is. No. No, Jesus doesn't just display love toward us. He defines love for us. And while his love flows down from Calvary in in a multitude of streams and rivers, I think it's helpful to focus on two categories in particular. When we try to wrap our mind around what, what love truly is and how God teaches us in Christ to love one another. So let me give you these two. And if they feel a little abstract at the beginning, hang with me because I'm going to try to Show you how they're practical, okay? First, love is an expression of delight. An expression of delight. No one is more lovely than God. Do you know that? Nobody's more lovely than God. The, the radiance of his beauty, the glorious splendor of his character, it is the standard of loveliness. So whatever is like God is what? Lovely. Whatever is not like God is what? Unlovely. Therefore, real love, true love, is an expression of delight that affirms and cherishes all that is like God in someone else. And Jesus shows us what this kind of love looks like. Hebrews 1 verse 8. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Do you realize love says I'm for that and I'm against that? By definition, because Jesus loves righteousness, He must hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, God the Father, has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So what's Jesus teach us there? He teaches us that it's not loving to affirm or cherish what is not like God in the people around you. That's not loving. We love one another when we we follow Jesus' example as one who what? Loved righteousness, holiness, who who affirmed and cherished what is lovely in God's eyes. So, So what do we need to do? What do we need to do? 
We need to ask the Lord to give us eyes to see all the ways that he is progressively at work in our brothers and sisters in Christ, making them progressively more like Jesus. So we could what? We could affirm and cherish all that is lovely in them as a result of that. Love is an expression of delight. Second, love is a gift. Expression of delight, it's a gift. Love is a gift in the sense that love gives itself to someone else listen, so that they might become more lovely or more like God than they already are. It's very practical. it's, It's what we're doing when we take God's word and we use it to bring a word of encouragement or correction to a brother or sister. We're, we're giving ourselves to that brother or sister in conversation, even difficult conversation with the hope and goal that they might become more lovely more like God. And it's also what we're doing, this love as, as a gift, whenever we sacrificially serve each other in very material ways. So think about this. You're not just making a meal. You're giving yourself to someone so they could experience God's provision and be more satisfied in God as a result of that experience. You're not just watching their kids You're what? You're giving yourself to someone so they can invest in their marriage or other friendships and enjoy and glorify God more as a result. Notice love as a gift isn't content to see people stay where they are. that's, That's where Christian love, brotherly sister love, really parts ways with the world. What does the world say? Love is nothing but saying whatever you are right now, all of you, I affirm. That's not loving, friend. Because love is what? It's an expression of delight that does affirm all that is like God, all that is truly lovely in that person. But then if we see things that are not lovely or like God, love says, I don't want anything to do with you and I'm going to run away in my lovely God hole. Because you might corrupt me. No, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. Keep that in mind. But love is also a gift in that it gives itself to someone, Christian, non-Christian alike, that they might become more lovely, more like God. Love isn't content to let people stay where they are. It has an agenda. It's compelled by a desire to see God glorified in the lives of everyone around us, especially our brothers and sisters. And Jesus shows us what this looks like too. Titus 2 verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If that's not love with an agenda, I don't know what that verse means. Because it is. Jesus what? He delights. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. Love is an expression of delight. But he also, love is, a, love is a gift. He gives himself to us. Praise God he gives himself to us. Amen? So that we could become more lovely. Now think about this. Look at verse 10. We're still under this this broad heading of we love one another as God's taught us to love. Think about this, verse 10. How in the world could Paul say to the Thessalonians, having been taught by God to love one another, you are loving, you're loving all the brothers throughout Macedonia. 
Where is Thessalonica? It's in Macedonia. Is all of Macedonia Thessalonica? No, not at all. It's a great big region. So how could Paul say that? I mean, surely that's an exaggeration. Well, no, because he's already told us back in chapter one exactly how they were doing that. Listen to this, chapter one, verses six. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So what is Paul saying to the Thessalonians? He's saying, guys, you should be encouraged. Why? Because what you're doing right now is a perfect illustration of love as delight and love as gift. What he's getting at with this loving one another. Why? Where do we see delight and gift in what the Thessalonians are doing? They delighted in the truth in the exceeding loveliness of God's word. And then they gave all who knew them or all who heard of them or all who had talked to somebody who knew them or heard them, you know, word just kind of spreads, the gift of their example of godliness. And according to Paul, that gift, their example, was already having a crazy effect on everybody around them, prompting people to, to rejoice and give thanks for the saving power of God. Chapter one, verse eight. Your faith has gone forth everywhere for they themselves report, everybody in Macedonia, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What is Paul's point? Paul's point is that love as delight and love as gift, they come together in this. The most loving thing you can ever do for a brother or sister in Christ is give them the example of your godliness. To provoke them to stir them up, to say, follow me as I follow Christ. If you want to love, truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then give them, friend, an infectious example of unfaltering joy in Jesus. Best gift you could ever give them. And as you lovingly affirm and cherish the one who is exceedingly lovely, infinitely lovely, no people are watching. And know that God will use your example to make those who are watching lovely as he is lovely. So how's this get practical? Well, let me give you some questions here to ask yourself. First, where are you tempted to affirm or cherish something that is not lovely? that is not like God, that's not glorifying to God. I was talking with uh, some young guys yesterday in our discipleship group, and we were discussing how there's so many things in this world that we would be hard-pressed to say are positively wrong, but if we're honest, they're eating away and undermining our love for Jesus Christ. Think about that. So what could that be? It could be the movies you watch, it could be the company you keep. It could be the way you spend your money or, or invest your time. Here's the big litmus test, okay? If a perfect stranger followed you around for an entire week, saw everything you did, everything you looked at, every minute of your time, how it was spent, everything you did with every cent that you had in your wallet, would they conclude from watching you that what you delight in the most is God? 
that he's exceedingly lovely to you. That's the delight that we want to have. Second, think about this. Ask yourself this. How does God want you to give yourself to the people around you, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, to help them become more like him? That's love as a gift. Remember, it's not just delight. It's, it's a gift. So love yearns and love prays and love labors to see the, the character of Christ formed in the people around you. That, that starts with our personal example, but it doesn't stop with just, hey, I hope you noticed me. I'm trying to love Jesus. No, it, it leans in. It prays. It labors. It speaks and talks. It engages with our brothers and sisters. Why? Because we love them. And we give ourselves to them for the sole purpose that God might be formed in them. We love each other as God taught us to love. Here's the final point. We love one another by practicing peaceable industry. <laughs> there are moments when I'm preparing a sermon and I think, oh, I, I know exactly the word we got to use here. I probably rewrote this third point four or five times. So if you're thinking, what is peaceable industry? Don't worry. Let's just think about this together, okay? The main point of verses 9 to 12, Paul's big picture exhortation is that we should what? We should love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ more and more. Period. That's his big idea. He says that at the end of verse 10. But then he also directs that that whole church, church-wide admonition, to a particular group of people in verses 11 and 12 in the church in Thessalonica that Paul wants to see loving the brothers and sisters in a particular kind of way that they are struggling to or they're not yet doing. So when we read in verse 11, look there, aspire to live quietly. You might think Paul means Christians shouldn't rock the boat. Christians should never ruffle feathers. Christians should never run for political office or participate in civil disobedience or otherwise engage in anything that could remotely draw attention to their quiet little selves in the public square. Who are you? Oh, don't mind me. I'm just a quiet Christian. <laughs> it's not what Paul's getting at. Okay? When, when we read in verse 11, aspire to live quietly, Paul doesn't mean we should live in relative isolation, never attract attention to ourselves, or all move to Cumberland County and take up farming. Sean. <laughs> That's not what he means by live a quiet life. Okay? When Paul says, I love to pick on my brother, it is quiet in Cumberland. When Paul says, aspire to live quietly, he means work hard, aspire, make it your ambition to not be a disruptive intrusion in the life of your Christian brothers or sisters such that you become a burden to them. Live a quiet life. What's that mean? Don't become a disruptive intrusion into the life of your brothers and sisters such that you become a burden to them. What does that look like? Well, the commands that follow help fill that out. Okay, so first, Paul says, mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs. He isn't making a case, please hear this, 
for, for a kind of selfish, self-centered attitude that says, hey, if you're a real mess, feel free to call me. But otherwise, you know, I'll shake your hand on Sunday and then just kind of go do my own thing throughout the rest of the week. Mind in my own affairs. God bless you, brother. Mind in my own affairs. No. No. Nor is Paul giving us ammunition to throw back in the face of someone who loves us enough to ask a hard question about our life or bring a word of correction, you know? Like, what? How dare you ask me if I looked at internet pornography this week? Did you just say that? I can't believe you said that. Do you, do you think I'm some kind of pervert? I mean, mind your own business. Crazy Christians always prying into people's personal lives. No. Minding your own affairs isn't an excuse, is not an excuse for selfishness or a license for arrogance. This is what it is. It's a call to humility. Loving one another means recognizing the best gift we can give one another, I said this before, is our personal example of godliness. It it means we need to get the speck, or rather the log, out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of our brothers. And, And we need to be really careful, church, that in the name of serving or caring for other people, that we end up neglecting the work God wants to do in our own heart and life. We need to mind our own affairs. What does that look like? Well, I think there's a certain type of Christian who really prides themselves on knowing what is going on in everyone else. Being involved in everyone else's lives. So you're, you're helping here, you're serving here, you're giving there, you're sacrificing here, you're busy, 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 busy. All to the glory of God. Well, don't presume it. Don't presume it. It's just because you're busy. Your, your first priority should be the health of your own soul. And your second priority, if, if you're married or a parent, should, should be the spiritual health of your own spouse or children. We, we need to guard, in other words, against this pernicious tendency to busy ourselves with serving other people and neglecting God's priorities. Especially, especially because minding other people's business, I have learned, even as a pastor, is almost always easier than minding my own business. You ever notice that? And we can be so busy and wrapped up with, oh, how can I pray for you? What do you, what do you need? What, what's going on in your life? How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? No, really, you, not me, you. <laughs> and behind all of that, minding other people's business can hide a lazy or fearful or arrogant unwillingness to deal with the issues in our own life. And sometimes that busyness with other people's affairs, we don't always realize this, but it becomes an escape from the pain of doing business with our own. It's so easy. So easy. We need to mind our own affairs. Second, Paul says we should work with our hands. Again, both these are just filling out. What's it look like to live a quiet life? 
to not be a disruptive intrusion such that we become a burden to others. So what's it mean to work with our hands? Does that mean, I feel like all, each of these, we have to start out by saying, well, what it doesn't mean because we can get off the rails. Does that mean that we should all um, go get a manual labor job? No. No, it doesn't. Manual labor is an honorable thing. Please hear that. Okay, God is not more pleased with people who do white-collar work with their minds and their typing fingers than he is with people who do blue-collar work with their lower back and their biceps. <laughs> if you work diligently with the gifts and abilities God has given you in a kind of work that enhances human flourishing, then you are pleasing God. So to work with your hands in verse 11 then isn't go do blue collar things. It's a specific application of this call to mind your own affairs. In this case, mind your own affairs by being what? Doing all you can to be financially independent. Or as Paul says in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So what seems to be going down in Thessalonica? It seems like some people there were taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. And sponging off their generosity. So if you are physically able to work, Paul is saying, it's not loving to expect anyone else, starting with your brothers and sisters in Christ, to support you so you don't need to work or don't have to work because you don't want to work and you would rather be busy in their affairs. That's what he's saying. Work is a gift from God. Work is created by God. Is work crazy hard in a world that's been corrupted by sin? Yes. (laughs) Will it be crazy hard until Jesus comes back? Yes. But God created us to work. And and there's a God-glorifying dignity, please hear this, in using the gifts and abilities God's given you to provide for yourself and your dependents. Sometimes we fall into these lies as Christians. We think, well, you know, I'm just trying to minimize my time at work and anything work related so I can, you know, follow Jesus because work's over here and Jesus is over. What? Don't build a wall between those two things. God is glorified in our work when it's done in a humble, diligent way, enhances human flourishing, honors his priorities. And you know, in some ways I think, and I felt this this week as a pastor thinking about this verse, I think the Thessalonian problem is a little bit less of a risk in a Western and relatively affluent society like ours. A little bit less. Because I think perhaps our greatest struggle, at least what I've seen as a pastor, is having the humility to be honest with our brothers and sisters when we actually do have a material need. Having the humility to say help to God by saying help to one another. We we tend to take so much pride in being financially independent that we idolize, we worship self-sufficiency. And we, we arrogantly soldier on in the midst of the most dire straits. You know, how are you doing, brother? Fine! <laughs> you know? Trying to be our own provider. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I need help. And sadly, many times, I've seen as a pastor, when we do in the church eventually humble ourselves and speak up, it's only because the material or financial need has gotten so bad that we feel like we have no choice. 
We got to fight that. But those cultural tendencies don't change the fact that Christians in every age have been tempted to take advantage of other believers, especially in the realm of financial provision, exploiting their love by depending on them to support you instead of using your hands, the gifts and abilities God's given you, to support yourself. It's good, Paul says in verse 12, to be dependent on no one. Why? Well, so you have something to share with those in need. And two, he brings this out explicitly. Look back at verse 12. When Christians model hard work and diligence in providing for ourselves, what do we do? We glorify, we commend God's character and ways in the eyes of a watching world. A lazy Christian who isn't willing to work is a terrible ambassador for a God who created work and is pleased with our work. That's what Paul's saying. A diligent Christian who's willing to work, if they're able, is pleasing to God. So we love each other by what? Practicing peaceable industry. Aspiring to not be a disruptive burden, either by being a spiritual busybody or a financial freeloader. We love each other for peaceable industry. Friends, I know that many of these points, loving one another as members of the same family, loving one another as God taught us to love, loving each other by practicing peaceable industry, they are not new to many of you but they are oh so important to keep doing what? What does Paul say? Verse 10, we urge you brothers to move on to other things because you already learned this once and never need to learn it again. No. What did he say? We urge you brothers to do this more and more. More and more. To to model a kind of familial love that we never exploit for selfish gain. And I I want you to know as a pastor, as I think about this church and all of you, I am so grateful for the way you love each other. So grateful. In many ways, I feel like the Apostle Paul. You're a church family that excels in loving one another. So, So I urge you with Paul, as Paul does, let's do it more and more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you know us so well that you get involved in our business. (laughs) Thank you that you are not a God who creates us and then leaves us to mind your own affairs. Thank you that you have made us your affair. That you teach us how to love. That you unite us to Christ. That you adopt us into your family. You You call us to love as brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you would keep working in this church, that we might be a people known in this community for genuinely and deeply and truly loving one another. Lord, I pray you would guard us from a fixation on the ways we may feel like we haven't been loved well and that we would give our first and best attention to how you, Holy Spirit, are convicting and calling and challenging us to grow and loving one another. Do that, I pray, more and more and more and more. Amen.